when you listen to monks who lived with Lumpur Cha talk about his teachings and practice. And you ask them what practices he emphasized. A very common or recurring theme is just learning to keep the mind in the present moment with the Pachubana Dhamma, to be mindful of whatever is arising into experience from moment to moment. Not letting the mind go to the past and what's happened already, dwelling on it, thinking about it, and not getting caught up into plans and dreams about the future. Learning that skill of having present moment awareness, making the f mind firm with this in the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness with clear comprehension, sati sampajanya. So using barikama pavana for this, using butto, using the breath bringing the mind back to the present moment over and over again, making it very firm so it doesn't slip away and get caught into moods and reactions, daydreams, sleepiness. And this is the flavor of our practice as bhikkhus, samaneras, anagarikas in a monastery your monastery is a place where Sangha practices following the Eightfold Path, following the Dhamma Vinaya, but in short, where we practice Sati Sambhajanya in daily life. The more we understand this point, the more it gives us a direction, a goal, at any moment in our day, in our life. There's always more to do. We can always be more mindful. We can make our minds firmer, overcome the hindrances. There's always something to be done. We're never at a loose end. And all our training is supporting that. We begin with the Patimoka Sila, just learning the rules of the Patimoka, putting them into practice, requires mindfulness and clear comprehension of what we're doing from day to day, moment to moment. We need continuous mindfulness, otherwise we can still forget the rules 
or get caught up into confusion or states conditioned by kilesa that lead us to break the rules. So in the beginning of our practice we're just learning these rules, reviewing them, becoming mindful of them. Becoming mindful of the monastic form, the etiquette, the rules about looking after the bowl, looking after the robes, how we stand, how we walk, how we talk, who we talk to and when, what kind of things we say. All of this is areas for training in mindfulness, clear comprehension. Najan Chah encouraged us to meditate a lot, meaning to put effort into sitting, walking, many hours a day, bringing up mindfulness, not just sitting for the sake of sitting, walking for the sake of walking, but walking to develop mindfulness, sitting to develop mindfulness. Learning to make the mind firm, the mindfulness continuous. In all postures, in all activities. This is our training. So we start to learn what supports the training as we live in the monastery. In mindfulness begets more mindfulness. It's a mindful behavior supports the arising of more mindfulness. Mindful speech, mindful action, mindfulness directed to the mind itself. One bhikkhu's mindful behavior encourages mindfulness in the others around them. Similarly, Unmindful behavior encourages more unmindful behavior. Unmindful speech, unmindful actions will be a condition for more unmindful speech, more unmindful actions. And the reason Ajahn Chah emphasized this over and over again, bringing awareness to the present moment, maintaining it, is because that's where we can realize the Dhamma. We keep developing mindfulness in the present moment, whatever the situation is, whatever our internal mental behavior is, we're bringing up mindfulness so that we can observe watch and understand more clearly the true nature of our experience. To see thoughts coming and going, feelings coming and going, memories, sense consciousness coming and going. To see the separation between mind and body. To be mindful of the senses and the sense contact we have. To be mindful as Kilesaris arising or has arisen or is potentially arising. 
not that kilesa is always in our mind. Sometimes the mindfulness is clear and the mind is peaceful. Other times it's not, depending on the situations and the conditions we find ourselves in. Some of the time kilesa is anusaya kilesa. It's just laying low, deep in our consciousness, in our subconscious, not yet stimulated. The causes and conditions have not yet come together, so kilesa has not been stimulated, but the potential is there. It's just as if lying in wait, a bit like a crocodile on the side of a lagoon waiting for some animal to come by, then it will spring into action. Kilesa can be like that, so that we're often caught unawares when conditions change. Kalesa suddenly rears up, which is why we have to have this training in mindfulness to catch Kilesa as it arises, or even just as it potentially is about to arise, to have enough sharpness of mindfulness to know oneself and to know Kilesa as Kilesa, cause of suffering. Cause of suffering is to be abandoned. So over and over again, our monastic training and our practice, whatever we're doing, whether we're on our own, with our others, we're busy, or we're just quietly sitting in meditation. It's about bringing the mind back to the present moment so we could be mindfully keeping in touch with our own experience, knowing the body and the mind as it is in an unjudgmental way, in a way that isn't creating more suffering out of our experience. And we don't need to look for particular teachings or special situations really. And if you practice mindfulness daily, there'll be constantly different situations testing your mindfulness because that's the way the world is. We have some pleasant experiences, some unpleasant experiences. Some are generated externally through conditions. Some are just internal, our own habits, memories coming up. But our aim is to maintain mindfulness throughout it all throughout the pleasant and the unpleasant, to keep that evenness of mind, to develop the equanimity that comes through the presence of mindfulness, clear comprehension. And this allows us to contemplate, to see Dhamma, understand it, to see kilesa as kilesa, greed, anger and delusion, to abandon kilesa, Sometimes at first you practice mindfulness and it's quite frightening as you notice how unmindful we are much of the time. Just walking along a path through the forest, you might think you see 
something that maybe is dangerous, like a, an insect or a snake or something that might harm you. Maybe it's just a quick glance, so you think this is something dangerous. Maybe you in the mind was caught up in some train of thought and then suddenly you feel there's something there. And then you walk on, you look more closely and you realize oh, it's just a twig or a branch or a root of a tree. Sometimes even you walk on again and still the perception comes back, oh, maybe it's a snake. Mindfulness can be like that. We have it and then we lose it and the mind can play tricks on itself. The way we relate to other people. Sometimes we misinterpret the information we're receiving through our senses. So we see somebody and we think they're looking at us or thinking about us, talking about us when maybe it's completely wrong. Sometimes we think somebody dislikes us, sometimes we think somebody likes us. But how true that is may be, may, the truth may be completely different from how we perceive it, especially when mindfulness is weak. Mindfulness is weak, then we immediately get caught into proliferation. Sometimes worrying, reacting with aversion, or joy, enjoyment, interest. This is what the mind adds on to our experience. The less mindfulness we have, the more it builds up everything into pleasure and pain and, and makes a lot out of it, creates things out of it. Whereas mindfulness has a very calming effect on the mind. The presence of mindfulness allows the mind to just know something, even something that can be very painful or difficult to experience. It gives the mind some emptiness inside, some space. And the more continuous the mindfulness is, the less the mind is deluded by experience, the less, that it, fall, the less it falls into moods of attraction and aversion. This is how we learn as we practice mindfulness. Establishing mindfulness and re-establishing mindfulness. We gradually learn that the dangers and the harm that comes when we lose mindfulness. We see the benefits of maintaining it. So you start to really incline the mind to want to have mindfulness. See it as a really, a really valuable quality. It becomes something that's important and useful to you as a tool. So you really want to develop it. And you stay away from the those conditions and those mental states that take mindfulness away. So mindfulness naturally leads on to the development of wisdom, wise reflection, right understanding. As you see, moods and mental states rooted in the kalesa where mindfulness is not present, they just lead to more suffering, more attachment, more confusion.
if you dwell on a mental state rooted in kilesas, you have a strong mood of aversion, anger, ill will, or a strong mood of lust, passion, and you just dwell on it, indulge it, it becomes harder and harder to establish mindfulness. As mindfulness is weaker and weaker, there's less of a sense of self-control. There's less of a personal breaking system on your own mental activity. You can't stop the mind thinking. That in itself is stressful. And it takes us far, further and further away from the Dhamma, from the truth. We get more caught up into delusion and create different moods and a sense of self around our experience. In the end, experience discontent, dissatisfaction because of the lack of mindfulness and the lack of clarity and wisdom. The mind is just caught up into a lot of mental states that are impermanent, agitating, unsatisfying. Because the presence of mindfulness is much the opposite. It maintains the evenness of mind, the ability to reflect on and, and see experience for what it is. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, that doesn't matter so much. Zajan Chah said it's like Standing at the bottom of a mango tree, your friend goes up the mango tree and shaking mangoes down. All you have to do is stay at the bottom and catch them in a basket. You don't even have to go up the tree. When we maintain mindfulness, whatever moods, whatever mental states, whatever conditions are arising into our experience, we can just know them and we can see them as an Icha Dukkha Anatta. It's the opposite of when we lose mindfulness and lose insight and then everything becomes seemingly permanent. We keep seeking satisfaction and happiness in that which it can't bring happiness. And the sense of a solid self forms around experience. But even pleasant experience, when it's experienced without mindfulness, just conditions more suffering. Of the disappointing disappointment of losing that pleasurable experience, the stress of trying to hold on to it or recreate it, find it again. Because mindfulness is energy saving. You're just knowing experiences without grasping at them. So it brightens the mind, liberates the mind, and produces a lot of extra energy. And the world is so concerned about saving natural resources, saving energy, recycling, developing kind of ways to produce energy without damaging the world, which is all very good, but we can do it mentally as well through the presence of mindfulness. Observe when you lose mindfulness and get caught into moods how much energy that takes up from 
both the body and the mind. The more we let the mind go, the more depleted we feel. Whereas the more we practice mindfulness, even if we're physically tired from putting forth effort, my, mentally the mind can be quite bright, energized and peaceful inside, even if physically retired. This is something we have to learn through experience by watching and learning. If you can recognize these kind of qualities, then the mind will quite naturally want to steer away from kilesa, indulging kilesa, following it. Quite naturally will want and incline towards developing mindfulness. And the steadiness of mind, the firmness of mind will become more attractive, more pleasing to the mind itself. And obviously the states of happiness that come as my mindfulness becomes more continuous, we experience some samadhi, and then there's the states of bliss and happiness that come with that. The quietness, the stillness, the contentment. Obviously that can still be a cause of attachment, but it's better to attach to that, to the more coarse coarser kinds of happiness that the world can provide us with. If we keep reflecting on its impermanent and selfless nature, then even that the blissful experiences of samadhi can be let go of, the attachment to them can be let go of. And obviously the more refined the mindfulness becomes in daily life as we keep the Vinaya train, use the quiet backdrop of the monastery, then little by little the mind becomes, moves to a more refined level, a quieter, more peaceful level inside, whatever else is going on around one. As we experience that, then what is not peaceful becomes more obvious to the mind. And when kilesas arise, they become more clear. It's more clear to the mind what kilesa is and how it's arising and how it affects you. So it becomes more natural to want to just let go and abandon kilesa. And when we are lay people, we often just don't even recognize kilesa as kilesa at all. Often we see kilesas as something good and useful. We're used to holding on to them. It's part of our personality and our regular way of operating in the world. Other people often praise us for having kilesa. We don't see it, they don't see it. When you come into the environment and the atmosphere of a monastery, things change. Kilesa starts to be exposed. You expose it yourself and other people and the environment around you exposes it. And kilesa is seen as something that causes suffering. So some kilesas that you formerly loved and held on to and thought were very important. Maybe slowly, little by little, you have to start to agree that um, this is not good for me. Little indulgences or bigger indulgences, habits, ways of thinking and talking and acting, ways of reacting to the world. Things we often found excuses for, we start to realize we can't make any excuses for them anymore. 
first that takes a lot of courage and patience to have to face up to that fact. Mm. You have to be willing to change and to learn from experience. Even without anyone else telling us, just living in a monastery because it's quiet and the standard of sila and the refinement of mindfulness practice is so high that even if no one says a word, you start to see kilesas that you didn't see before. You have to be honest and own up to them. The more you go on, then the more you see, maybe more on more refined levels, more subtle levels. So much of our practice is about habitually establishing mindfulness, observing craving and attachment arise in different forms and then having to frustrate it. If we keep indulging kilesa, then obviously it will remain strong, remain present in our way of thinking and acting. So we have to start frustrating it. So again, it's this practice of patience and being willingness to train oneself to go against one's own craving attachment, one's own kilesa but doing it because one knows this will actually free and liberate the mind from suffering. You know, getting up in the morning when it's cold and dark, maybe it's raining. Our old way of thinking, the, the way of kilesa is, no, I don't want to do that. I'd rather just lie in a warm bed, avoid the pain, painful, cold feelings and the exertion it requires to get up and go and meditate. But how long can you do that? If you live in a monastery, you can't lie in bed day after day after day. You can maybe do it once or twice, sometimes, but after a while, it becomes obvious this is kilesa, and this is not leading to progress or benefit in the practice. It was the same with food. If you just indulge your desires for food and just eat everything you want every day, constantly just picking food you like, indulging in it, after a while, it's not sustainable. Partly because of your own mind, your own sense of conscience and awareness, partly because of other people around you, becomes obvious this is not the way of, that's going to lead to liberation and freedom from suffering. So we start to practice restraint, mindfulness, put forth effort into getting up to meditate, sitting, walking, using our time wisely, reflecting on the requisites, the use of the robes, the use of the food, how to eat mindfully and wisely, how to eat in a way that we're reducing kilesa and not increasing kilesa. We eat every day, so we have the practice to, the opportunity to practice this every day. really come to understand your own mind. How does kilesa arise around food? What desires come up? If you don't follow a desire, what happens? You have a desire for a certain kind of food, but you don't follow it, you say no to it. What happens? And that desire just fades away, it's impermanent. Probably fades away until the next day when you're faced with it again. 
but you won't die if you don't follow a particular desire. You may desire a certain kind of food, so you say no to that desire, so you pick another kind of food which doesn't really bother you too much. Nobody's forcing us to fast or starve ourselves, but you can use mealtime as an opportunity to frustrate kilesa teach yourself that you can let go of kilesa and desire without any harm to yourself and in fact you do yourself a lot of good picking certain kinds of food and just say no I won't eat that or I'll just take a little when I want to take a lot in the end this is why eat little, sleep little, talk little because these are the most ordinary kind of ways where kilesa arises around food, around social interaction with other people around sleep, how much we sleep and our attitude towards sleep generally he said with sleep when you wake up, it's a sign that your body's had enough sleep. If you're really tired and exhausted, well you probably would be asleep, you wouldn't be waking up. Once you wake up, we'll get up, sit, walk. We don't have a lot of pressure to do many things. We can use all that energy that we might formerly have used to earn a living as a working in the world. Now we can turn it to meditation getting up, sitting, walking. Speech is an area to learn mindfulness with. The more you speak, again, the more energy flows away, the more verbalizations are indulged, the more the mind is filled with clutter. The more we speak, the more opportunity for misunderstanding, miscommunication bad feeling between people, things said in error or by mistake or just without sensitivity towards others. We can say things that hurt each other's feelings or just cause misunderstanding the more we speak. Try and develop enough mindfulness to have the awareness to be able to choose whether to speak or not. And if you're going to speak, to choose your words. Think what words are useful, helpful. If there's nothing helpful to be said, well, maybe silence is the best. So over and over again, our practice is about developing mindfulness in the present moment, the Pachyubhana Dhamma to know this body and mind as it is, to know the mind, whether kilesa is arising or not, is it present or not? If it's present, how to deal with it skillfully? Does it come out in our speech, our actions? Direct the mind to contemplate and understand the experience of this life as a human being our interaction with the world, how we deal with the material world wisely, what we use, make use of in this world. As bhikkhus we're learning to just 
live with enough. We have plenty of requisites offered, but we still have to choose how much we need. The more you have, the more you've got to look after. The less you have, the less you've got to look after, the less to think about. And the Buddha encouraged us to be more like a bee, just taking a few grains of pollen from this flower and that flower without harming the flower. Just enough to get food and to carry on raising other bees. Because we learn just to take enough, just to get by with. We don't have to accumulate a lot of wealth. don't have to have a lot of things, just enough to make our practice convenient. To constantly be bringing the mind back to the present moment and then reflect on what we're doing, what's going on mentally in your mind. What are you saying? What are you doing? How do you spend your time? What attitudes do you have towards the practice, towards other people? We learn to question our own thoughts sometimes. The old teaching, when you get caught into negativity, feeling angry or irritated with the place or the people, you ask yourself the question, is it really the place and the people or is it really just this mind, this mood that has arisen and I'm grabbing hold of, holding on to? The moods are just moods, they're just thoughts that arise and pass away, feelings that arise, pass away. There's nothing substantial, there's nothing solid in any of them, just endless sankharas. It's the practice of mindfulness that exposes this, teaches us how to let go of that which causes suffering to us. So learn that skill, and this is what the world needs. You can pass it on to other people, you can teach yourself and then teach other people how to let go of that which causes us suffering. There's no one else who can let go for you. All other people can do is remind you of the path of the teachings, help support you with situations that will help you to see your own mind better. But you're the one who has to do the practice. You're the one who has to bring out mindfulness, reflect on the Dhamma. So I'll leave you with these words tonight.